0: at orderct.com slash easter24.
1: We spend a lot of time on podcasts like this predicting the future in various ways. But as we do that, we know life is really unpredictable. And as the scripture says, we do not not know uh, the number of our days. And that's why it's a really important thing to have a will to protect yourself and your family. Christianity Today is partnered with Epic Will to walk you through the entire process of creating a will in as little as 10 minutes. You don't have to have a law degree uh, to be able to walk through this, and that's why it's really helpful. So visit morect.com. That's M-O-R-C-T.com. Will. That's morect.com slash will to get started today. Hello, this is Russell Moore. And you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. Every week here, we explore conversations and questions from a Christian perspective. And today, I want to talk about Happiness. Because there's a, a book, a new book out that I read. And you know, there are so many books that that purport to deal with happiness. This one was really, really helpful. Uh, called From Strength to Strength by my guest, Arthur Brooks. And uh, I really wasn't surprised because I've been reading Arthur Brooks for years. And especially uh, the past couple years is How to Build a Life uh, column uh, through the Atlantic. If you haven't seen that, it deals with many of the issues that we're talking about today, and you'll want to uh, look at it. He is a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School and Business School, uh, teaching uh, the next generation some of the things that we'll be talking about today. Arthur Brooks, thanks so much for being here. Hi,
0: Russell. It's great to be with you. I haven't talked to you in some months, maybe a couple of years, as a matter of fact.
1: Well, we were, in, we were in, uh, out on the West Coast together in Pacific uh, Oh, that's Pacific, true. That's true. Uh, we were in Vancouver, Washington together some months Vancouver, ago. That's true, actually. Yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, before we get into these issues of happiness, um, that, that I want to talk about, um, a couple things that are sort of in the, in the news right now that I think are kind of related that I'm curious with the horror of the Uvalde shooting, the Buffalo shooting, uh, all of the, the things that we've seen. One of the things that has come up uh, several times is a is a sort of mental health crisis uh, happening, especially among young people? Some say, and there are others who will say, "No, this is this is uh, the same sort of depravity that uh, that we've always seen. It's not anything new." But others are saying, you know, "Look at look at the stresses and the strains after COVID, and uh, study after study showing that there really are some significant mental health
0: concerns happening now with younger people." What's your view on that? So I look at the data as a social scientist, and you know I care about it in the same way that anybody who does who is a, a father of a, a young adult children too, of course, um, because my kids are in their 20s, in their early 20s. Um, but as a social scientist, it's hard to deny the fact that there is a real crisis, a real mental health crisis. Uh, it's really an unhappiness crisis. Um, and you might even take mm. it a little bit deeper and say that what we see is a real lack of love. For people in the early twenties, and you know, it's interesting because, as a social scientist, but also as a Christian, there's a, a, a an easy way to understand it—not to solve it, but an easy way mm-hmm. to understand it, which is, you know, the the first letter of Saint John, who in, in which uh, John the Apostle says that perfect love drives out fear. It is a an absolute truth, philosophically, psychologically, even neuroscientifically, that love and fear are opposites, that, that mm. hatred and love are not opposites. Hatred is downstream from fear. When you see a lot of fear that's creating trouble in a society, that means there's a lack of love, and, and you absolutely see that for people who are in their early 20s and mid-20s today. You find that they are about 30 percentage points less likely to be married. And and, and again, people listening to us—we have a lot of people who are in their 20s today. They'll say they'll object and say, "Yeah, but what about cohabitation?" That's down too. You find that even Mm. the, the likelihood of saying "I am in love" is down 30 percentage points compared to what it was when you and I fell in love with our wives in the in the 1980s. And that's catastrophic. And so that lack of love—it's—it's it's, you know—it's counterbalances fear, and that fear is creating a tremendous amount of unhappiness, a tremendous amount of anxiety, depression, and a lot of the things that we see. I don't know if the shootings that we've seen, these uh, these atrocities, are related to that. I suspect that they're not. I suspect that those are those are really a uh, uh, deep mental health, schizophrenic and psychotic uh, problems. You know, mental untreated mental health problems that that are are the same kind. Problems that we were seeing in the same frequencies before. But there are a lot of people who are not even near some sort of a crime, not even near even some sort of self harm, but who are suffering mm-hmm. a great deal more than they would have 40 years, 30, and 40 years ago.
1: Given the fact that this is unique, how often this is happening in our country, do you think there's anything in terms of public policy that can be done in terms of gun access, uh, gun culture uh, and so forth? Or will that, in your view, not uh, address the problem?
0: I don't know is, is the answer to that, because as a public policy analyst, I mean, I've, I'm somebody who suffered through a PhD in public policy analysis. And so I, you know, chronically say, I don't know. I mean, the, the more educated you get in public policy, the more likely you are to, to, you know, to not be able to answer these questions. And the truth is that you look at the amount of of gun violence the 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 likelihood of being harmed by gun violence and and adjusted for population is very similar to the united states as it is in many western european countries that have way stronger gun laws than we have in the united states now that doesn't mean that that better gun laws and gun safety um that they couldn't make uh, that they couldn't do anything good for us perhaps there are ways that we could craft our laws or with background checks or with appropriate mental health interventions that are, that are identified when people are trying to get guns or whatever we're trying to do that people should be able to agree on and right and left that I mean, the problem that we have with our gun laws is that we're just such absolutists in so many areas where the, the vast majority of Americans, they agree that, that we, we should be able to do more and we should have some common sense reforms. And this is not just about conservatives and guns, by the way, the mm-hmm. same exact kind of argumentation goes with respect to abortion. Where you know the vast overwhelming majority of Americans think that some common sense restrictions on abortion, and yet the whole thing is taken hostage by by people who have ex- extremely uh, hardcore polarized views on the subject. So it's nothing weird that we would actually see the whole debate becoming impossible to adjudicate from and make improvements from a very mainstream standpoint. So the young people who are listening to us and and people who are not so young listening to us who say, why can't we make any progress? The basic answer is that people who don't have mainstream views are yelling the loudest and controlling the conversation. Mm. Hmm. You know,
1: something that is not nearly as important as this, but is uh, uh, a focus right now, student debt. Uh, Conversations about forgiving student debt. And one of the things that's really unique about you is you're one of the few Harvard professors, uh, public intellectuals who will say, we ought to be thinking about college differently. And not everybody needs to do it. Uh, the traditional way. Uh, what, what do you think for somebody who's thinking through, should I take on a bunch of debt and get a college degree or should I do something
0: else? What would your counsel be to them? Well, it depends on the person to be sure and the kind of ambitions that they have for their own career. But the one thing that, is, that doesn't make sense at all is that they got a tremendous amount of debt to go to a liberal arts college. That just doesn't make sense. And the reason for that is that there, there's so much high-quality education that's absolutely affordable. You know, I raised my kids in in, in Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C. I live in Boston now. but When my kids were growing up, you know, and I would talk to a lot of parents who would say, oh, my goodness, you know, Haverford College is so unbelievably expensive. My son wants to go to Haverford College. I said, no, 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 no. The thing to do, if you don't have very many resources, but you want higher education, is to start off at community college and transfer to the University of Maryland, which is an absolutely outstanding institution. That's the right thing to do, because it's $3,000 a year for the community college and $9,000 a year in-state for the the state university. There's tons of high-quality alternatives, and this idea that somehow people have to take on huge amounts of debt. The real debt problem that we have in this country, by the way, is people who don't finish college, and, and don't have, you know, nobody says you get credit for half your sophomore year. Um, You'll only no. get credit, you know, only get credit for going to college in the job market when you go through all four years. And that's actually the kind of reform that we need. You know, the more the more college that you do, it should be like a thermometer. It goes up. It's a continuous thing. It's not a discrete measure of zero or one or one is the entire college degree. You should be able to get more school, and the more school that you get should be appropriate to the kind of job that you're doing, and that we should have way more alternatives from state schools, community colleges, trade schools, vocational schools, and we should match people to the cost-effective alternative with the amount of education that's best for their hopes and dreams. Well, your, your book
1: is, uh, called from strength to strength, finding success, happiness, and deep purpose in the second half of life. Right. But it's a little bit misleading because this really is for people in the first or second halves <laughs> of life. For sure. And as I was reading this, I was thinking there is so much here that I wish I had read when I was 22. Uh, it, it would have helped me a lot, but before we talk about some of those things, uh, There's a saying sort of in my corner of the evangelical Christian world that's often given, God cares about your holiness, not your happiness. And sometimes there's this assumption that happiness is kind of a modern uh, self-expression, self-actualization sort of idea that really isn't what we should be uh, concerned about. I think you see that differently.
0: Uh, How so? Well, part of it, it has to do with what happiness means. You know, everybody Mm -hmm. thinks they know what it is until they start thinking about it. It's like, huh, it's a head scratcher. I asked my students on the first day of class, I teach this graduate class seminar on happiness for the Harvard Business School. And, you know, these are some of the most talented students I've ever met. And they give, they spend all of their elective points to get into the happiness class. So let's say, you guys must know what it is or you wouldn't have actually invested in it like this. What is it? And I cold call them. And one by one, they talk about their feelings. And I say, wrong. Mm. If that's the case, then God does care about your holiness, not your happiness, because the whole idea of feelings, as, you know, C.S. Lewis used to say that, you know, how you feel about things depends on what you're digesting as much as anything else. And, you know, God should not be so shallow as to be all in the business of our feelings, for Pete's sake. Our holiness Mm. is much deeper than that. But real happiness is not feelings any more than your Thanksgiving dinner is nothing more than the smell of the turkey. Your happy feelings mm. are evidence of happiness, and happiness as, a, as, a, as a, a, a neuroscientific and social scientific matter is a combination of the enjoyment that you have in your life, the satisfaction that you have in your accomplishments, and, and the rewards for the job well done that you do, and, and the meaning and purpose of your life, which requires a lot of suffering. And so this is mm. the key thing to keep in mind, that happiness from a beatific perspective, from a Christian perspective, requires a lot of unhappiness. It requires a lot of holiness. It requires a lot of suffering. You I mean, look, we're, we're the only religion in the world that understands that. that look, we're a religion based on suffering, that we mm-hmm. understand that suffering is an incredibly sacred thing. I mean, our Lord suffered, and that was part mm. of the essence of His holiness. The Master of the Universe suffered in a very human way, and we should be, we should try to avoid suffering. My goodness, what a what a what a uh, irreverent thought for us, and, and once we get into the, I'm trying to not suffer and trying to feel better and I'm trying to be happy, then of course, happiness is, is, is orthogonal to holiness in this case, but not when we properly understand happiness. Hmm. And isn't it true that a sort of um, manufactured
1: artificial happiness actually contributes to the problem? I, I think all the time about a woman I knew who had had a miscarriage and was grieving and she didn't want to go to her church. And I said, "Why not?" And she said, "Well, because everything there is so happy. All the songs are about um, happiness and joy. There's not this sense of lament that takes place in my church. And it actually contributed to her unhappiness. It, it wasn't able to to lead her to a happier place because it didn't. I mean, the Book of Psalms has joy, lament,
0: anger. I mean, uh, the the full range of human emotion. There's a book called Lamentations." I mean, for yeah. Pete's sake. I mean, the, the whole. I mean, read Ecclesiastes, and you know, tell me that you know, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's the the Bible is full of suffering, because human life is full of suffering, and to take that out is kind of like Thomas Jefferson snipping out all the parts of the Bible he didn't like to make the, you know the you know make Jefferson's Bible, A.K.A. not the Bible. You know, right. the, the, it's you know, the you know the Christian religion without suffering is simply not the Christian religion. You know, we we are called to live to to be fully alive. You know, this is Saint Irenaeus, and, and I'm a Catholic, so I make these saint references. But this is in the fourth century, so this is pre. Yeah. Uh, this is pre-Protestantism. This is, this is the, the patrimony mm-hmm. of all Christian people. St. Irenaeus said that the glory of God is a man fully alive, by which he meant a person mm-hmm. fully alive. And to be fully alive is to have the, all of the sensations, all of the emotions, to be walking through the world with all the good and the bad that it is because this is God's gift to us. It's weird, you know, that only when you, and, and this is as a, as a social scientific matter you find this, but it's just the experience that we all have. When you finally confront life in all of its complexities, then, then the fullness of life can actually become a source of this deep satisfaction to you in the first place. But if you're spending all of your time or a lot of your time and your energy trying to avoid unhappiness, you hmm. will paradoxically avoid your happiness by, by, by cutting the meaning, by cutting the purpose out of your life, by cutting a good deal of sacredness out of your life in the first place. you got to live it all, man. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, these declining
1: rates of um, of love, experience of being in love. That's exactly at the root of at least a lot of what I encounter. Yeah, are, are people who will say, in order to pursue someone or to commit to someone, I have to know that there's no risk there. That this right. this
0: person is going to be my soulmate, and that's right. not that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You know, fear of rejection is something that I think that it's interesting. My friend and colleague Jonathan Haidt, Mm-hmm. who's a great social psychologist, teaches at the Stern School of Business at New York University. And he, he does all this work that shows that young people are more fearful of social rejection than any other generation since we've been keeping records. And a lot of it has to do with social media, which puts everybody on display. It raises the stakes to everything, raises the stakes to your mistakes, et cetera, Cancel culture, et cetera. Et cetera. But he also says that it has to do with the way that we, people at your and my age, raise our young adult children and have done mm. so to, with the safetyism cult that keeps them you know, adjudicating their disputes when they're in elementary school. I mean, you, when you and I would get into a fight on the playground, Um, you know, you'd go home and, you know, I I got beat up and my dad would be like, so did you deserve it? (laughs) It was, you know, I used to run around barely, basically unsupervised. And I get it, I get it. I mean, I grew up in a working class neighborhood in Seattle, the same neighborhood that Ted Bundy had been marauding through. And my parents are like, yeah, it's okay if you have a 4.30 a.m. paper route by yourself. And by the way, don't come back till dinner. I mean, it was, maybe that's too much, but let me tell you, when you protect kids from the, from the pathogens of conflict, of rejection, of hurt, they will not be ready for these things in their 20s. And, you know, to young people listening to us, you got to get exposed to things. you got to get your chops up. You have to have resiliency. And And if you don't, it's just going to be much, much harder to form the relationships that are at the basis of a good and happy life.
1: Well, what would you say to someone who's listening to this, who says you know? I'm in my 20s, and I do have this sort of inordinate fear of rejection. But what do I do about it? I can't. I can't go back and retroactively uh, change the, my upbringing or right. my circumstances. So what do I. What do I do if I'm just constantly worried
0: about what people think of me? Yeah so the so the, the the thing to do I actually write about that a lot Mike in my um, in my column in the Atlantic and that's my next book is actually going to be about mm-hmm. you know the things how to start out right as a young adult and and by the mm-hmm. way how we all can start over right <laughs> at any mm-hmm. age in life because just as you know the second half of life is actually the first half of life vice versa is true as well the first thing that young people are very comfortable with that, that, that can be quite helpful is the metaphor of entrepreneurship. You know, we, we learn all young people learn about startups and taking risks and starting businesses and all that, ways that that guys like you and me came, didn't come naturally to us because we didn't talk about that when we were in our 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very comfortable with it in their 20s and 30s today. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is that 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 that, that failure is part of startup life. Now, entrepreneurship really isn't about business creation. Entrepreneurship is about creating explosive rewards. It's about faith in resources that you don't currently have in hand. It's about a vision of a better future along some lines. Starting a business is the most boring kind of entrepreneurship. And I don't think it's bad. I think it's great. I love living in a capitalist <laughs> entrepreneurial society. The most common type of entrepreneurship is the, is, is the startup of your life with a currency of your love and your heart. That's the most Mm. entrepreneurial thing that most people do. Falling in love is the biggest startup enterprise that anybody can engage in. Now, when you look at the data on startup businesses, the average successful startup entrepreneur has 3.8 failures before their first success. Mm. Let's just think about that and and put it in perspective. When you're gonna, if you're gonna have a happy, successful entrepreneurial life that has a lot of love in it, you need at least 3.8 nasty breakups. You know, you need somebody to stomp on your heart a bunch of times because you're simply not going to learn. Treat it like a startup. You know, I've done this before. I was talking to a guy. I mean, sorry, I was talking to a, a bunch of young people in Washington, D.C., and I said, treat your heart, your, treat your love like a startup. And a couple of weeks later, I run into this kid on a plane. He's not a kid. He's in his 20s on a plane, and he says, he identifies me. Are you Dr. Brooks? And I said, yeah. He said, he said I couldn't get that thing you said out of my head to treat my my love, like a startup, and so I'm on my way to tell this woman that I've been secretly in love with for two years that I'm in love with her and ask her to to be with me, and and I said I'm like it's only a speech, man, because <laughs> you know I don't want to ruin his life, and and yeah. it, it he I found him a couple of months later, um, and I ran into him again. I said, how did it work out? And he said she rejected me. She's she she just huh. completely. And I, I was very, I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to lead you astray. He says, no, 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 You don't understand. That was the thing I was most afraid of. And the worst thing happened and I didn't die. And I'm not going to be afraid huh. anymore. He, he faced the pathogen. See, a lot of young people have kind of a social peanut allergy. And, and, mm. and that as actually a thing that didn't exist when we were kids because people were exposed to the pathogen. Now, Peanut allergy is a real deal. I'm not saying you should go eat peanuts if you have a peanut allergy. But if you're afraid of love, you actually need more. You need to face fear more. And the only way to face fear more is is to recognize that you're not afraid of the outcome. This is a psychological mm-hmm. truth. You're not afraid of actually what will happen if you're rejected. You're afraid of your own feelings. That's what's happening. Almost mm. all fear of rejection is the fear of my own feelings about myself. When you recognize the absurdity of that, then you're being you're a lot less likely to fail. The second thing is to start is to start visualizing the failure itself to make it more Familiar, that's exposure therapy. There's a a lot of Buddhist meditation about death, for example, and the reason is, is that only when you're comfortable with your death, which as Christians, we're completely comfortable with our deaths. You know, it's like, I got to heaven, man. I couldn't be more comfortable mm-hmm. with anything. Actually, mm-hmm. um, we're just—you know—the key thing is you got to hold it back. So that you're not supposed to say "bring it on," <laughs> right? Yeah. But the Buddhists, you know, that have a lot more earthbound understanding of that, they have to expose themselves to the concept of death, and that's what I recommend that young people do as well: is to meditate on on envisioning the very thing that you're afraid of, and it will become familiar. You'll be less afraid. So these are the kinds of ways that I counsel young people, and it—it's it just—it can—it can be like a miracle. It can be really life-changing when they get past this.
1: So the idea, think positively, uh, think, think about all of the, give affirmations to yourself about, uh, about how this, I am going, this is going to succeed. Yeah, no,
0: that's not no, the no, way to no, go. no, that's not the way to do it. No, 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 it's like, no, no, negative affirmation, bring it on. Be tough, you know, face your fears is what it comes down to. So number one, be an entrepreneur, which says, I believe that explosive, incredible riches are, are possible, but I also recognize that failure is a real possibility and it's gonna happen more than success, but I need mm-hmm. enough deal flow to get the success and then then, 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 then work your way through the scenario of actual failure. So that's step one and step two.
1: Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity Today And we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is by having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes, you owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step. And you can get started today by visiting morect.com slash will. That's more, just one O, oh, ct.com slash will. And for a limited time, you can get 10% off. That's morect.com slash will. Hmm. You know, one of the things that I've noticed uh, over the past several years, a lot of people in Christian ministry, evangelical Christian ministry, maybe especially sort of our ecclesial equivalent of entrepreneurs, church planters and people who have started yeah. new ministry. I've seen them in their forties, uh, many of them just sort of come apart in different ways. I mean, sometimes it's uh, affairs, sometimes it's alcoholism, sometimes it's something else that coming apart. And I've always thought, thought of that more in terms of kind of the feeling of mortality. But when I was reading your book, I mean, one of the things you talk about is the difference between that, uh, that fluid intelligence, as you call it, in the first half of life, changing over to a crystallized intelligence and that
0: that throws some people uh, yeah.
1: sometimes. Explain to us what that's
0: about. Yeah, so this is a really important thing for people in Christian ministry, but also who in surgery and in lawyer life and in, you know, be financial planners and accountants and everybody else in between. And the way that it works is that that really highly motivated striving people get incredibly good at what they're doing in their 20s and 30s on the basis of what psychologists call fluid intelligence. That's innovative capacity. That's crystallize that's I mean sorry, that's uh, that's working memory. That's Incredible creativity, that's indefatigable energy and focus. That's, you know, church planning is all about that. You're going to put a church out there someplace, you need to be very innovative. You need to be incredibly energetic. You have to, you know, never slow down. And what you'll find is that the more you do it, the better you get. And you can be incredibly effective. The problem is that ability peaks in the late 30s or early 40s, and then it starts to decline. And it starts to get just harder to get the energy to do what you used to do relatively easily. That's called yeah. burnout. And, and one of the mm-hmm. things is that, that extremely uh, effective strivers, they're the first to notice that they're the first to notice that what used to be easy is hard, what used to be you know, simple to motivate myself to do. Now I can barely get out of bed to do it. That's because your fluid intelligence is in decline, and then you're going to start to turn to alcohol. You'll, you'll, you might have an affair. Maybe you're just a really good dentist and you start taking Fridays off maybe it's something like that but but it's like why would you take friday's off when you used to love your job so much why would you want mm-hmm. to take a day off to do something that's that's trivial like golf compared to what you what was your vocation your holy vocation of uh, mm-hmm. of, of healing people and giving them better teeth And so that's really what's going on on that. And the thing to keep in mind is that that it does decline, but but there's the best news. God's great gift to us is the second intelligence curve. That's a different set of skills that comes, everybody gets it in their 40s and 50s, and it can stay high in your 60s and 70s and 80s and as long as God gives you years. It's called crystallized intelligence, which is your wisdom curve, your teaching curve, your team building curve, your mentorship curve. This is your ability to, to speak fluently to get to, to, to put ideas together of other, that other people's created. And, and, and to mm-hmm. to teach people um, things that you haven't been able to do before. So what I recommend to people who are in in, in clergy, so I deal with Catholic priests more than I deal with evangelical um, ministers, but, but the evangelical crowd I, I talk to a lot these days too. And what I recommend for church planters, for example, is to make sure that you have a plan in the churches that you're planting to be able to step into a more senior teaching role by the time you're in your early 50s And you have other people that are running the operation behind you that have this indefatigable Mm. energy that can grow the business. Sorry, I don't mean to use the the, the language of business, but like the grow the Mm. organization. These are nonprofit organizations can grow it in innovative and new ways while you're stepping back into a senior pastor role to teach new people to. And and where you don't have to work 80 hours a week, too. That's a super important thing to plan out. That's basically just a happiness 401k plan. Hmm. You know,
1: we look at uh, American political life. The president's about to turn 80. Yeah. The prospective Republican nominee is, is in the late 70s. Uh, the Speaker of the House is 81, I think. You just go through, the, the Senate Majority Leader is in his 80s. Is that... A healthy thing. I mean, is it people sort of uh, is it that we're recognizing the sage-like wisdom of age, or is it instead the reverse uh, that you have a generation of people who are not really wanting to let go and, yeah. and turn things over
0: to a younger yeah, generation? Yeah, yeah. So that it's it's the latter. And you know, again, I want Ross to crystallized intelligence. Most Americans would don't really want to vote for a presidential candidate who's under fifty. And there's a reason, there's a mm-hmm. sense of wisdom that comes from people who are over 50 because crystallized intelligence tends to be really high. This idea of working together, of explaining things, of, of pattern recognition, of just deep wisdom. We, we understand that people have that, but, but, but then there's a, an energy level problem that you get when you're too old. For most people, there's this curve in there. This is when the curves cross of these different things. You can be very, very wise, but there's almost nobody that can live up to the energy needs of the presidency of the United States after 70 or 75 years old. It's just, it's just too hard a job to do that. Now, why do we keep electing people? Because the party system locks people out, except for seniority reasons. You know, you basically have a... It's like the old Soviet Union. It's like the Politburo, which is just a bunch yeah. of old men. We used to laugh... Remember, Russell, when you and I were kids in the 70s, we would laugh at the gerontocracy of these, you know, one old right. man that would take over after another and immediately die. And they would go Go out of yeah. public view and the joke would be they got a really bad haircut and the truth was because they were ailing and dying and becoming senile and the whole thing. And and now the United States is rewarding these political leaders that are that that really are a little bit too old to be doing what they're doing. And, and so what do we need? We need kind of a sweet spot you know for leaders in a in a capitalist democracy that we choose, we should be looking at people who are probably more between you know the ages of 50 and 70. That's kind of the sweet zone of of you know lots of crystallized intelligence but also if you've got good health, a lot of energy as well. But that that
1: requires also, though, younger people who are actually wanting to take the responsibilities of, of, in this case, governing. I mean, if you look, it doesn't matter what party or or what place on the ideological spectrum, a lot of the people who are in that fluid intelligence uh, stage are just sort of wanting to wanting to be on cable news and
0: raise money. I mean, there are some yeah. exceptions to that, but that's what's really being rewarded right now. Yeah, that's true. And so, what we need is people who, if they have if they have a real ambition to to serve um, in their fifties and sixties, they need to be cultivating their leadership abilities in their twenties and thirties. Quite frankly, and that mm-hmm. means different kinds of offices and different kinds of leadership, whether in business or nonprofits or even politics really when they're on their fluid intelligence curve and, and as they're growing older, such that they're ready and they have enough perspective and they have enough experience to be at these high, high, high level positions, whether it's the CEO of IBM or the president of the United States, when they're in, in especially the, the especially good age to be doing that. you got to be doing a lot at 40 to be the president at 55. <laughs> mm-hmm, and you can't yeah. just kind of show up and say, well, you know, I, you know I'm old enough now. And I had a lot of fun, and and I had a cable show. I mean, that's just kind of not good enough. Sometimes that happens. It can happen, but I'm not saying it's, I don't think it's ideal most of the
1: time. Right, no, that's for sure. I smiled in your book when I saw the name Wayne Oates, who's a professor (laughs) at my alma mater, uh, who was a professor at my alma mater. He coined the term uh, workaholic. Uh, yeah. That was in his obituary in the New York Times. Uh, they, they coined that term. And you talk about this uh, success addiction. Um, and, and as I was reading that, I was wondering, how does one know if one is sort of addicted to success or if one is just ambitious,
0: yeah. just, just wants to uh, accomplish a lot? Success addiction is like any other addiction. All addictions have the same neurobiological roots. What's implicated is a neuromodulator called dopamine. Almost everybody knows about it. For a long time, it was called the pleasure neurotransmitter, but it's not. It's the neurotransmitter of anticipation of a reward. So, for example, whether you're whether you're just it's like I really, really, really want to go play the slot machines, or I really, really want a cigarette, or man, I'm just craving a drink, or you know whatever it happens to be, or you know. And by the way, one of the worst um, addictions that a lot of people, a lot of a lot of Christian people suffer from is pornography addiction. It's a dangerous, mm-hmm. dangerous thing because it just wires your brain. So the the dopamine makes you extremely productive at processing pornography with tremendous damage to relationships, just like any other addiction to be sure. But that's just a really nasty one that's, that's very prominent in the Christian community. Um, and they all work dopamine the same way, as does the success addiction. Now, success addiction usually starts with people who are are strivers early in life. They're, they're good students, or they're really hard workers, or they're identified as kind of the special one, often by their parents. Look, despite our parents and our best intentions we objectify our kids we we project our own autobiography onto the onto the onto the screen of our children you know my kids i'm so proud of them you know one of them went to princeton and the other didn't go to college and he's a, he's a, he's a sniper in the us marine corps yeah, my little mm-hmm. girl, she's in college in Spain. She's getting straight A's. And what am I doing when I'm bragging to you right now, Russell? I'm, mm-hmm. I, I want to be a tough guy in the special forces. I want to go to Princeton. I want to go study mm-hmm. in Spain. I'm projecting my autobiography out of the screen of my children because I'm so proud of them. But I'm really thinking about me. And that's what mm-hmm. we do all the time. And the problem with that is that we make, we objectify our kids into becoming the special one and they objectify themselves. So the the high Mm -hmm. achieving kids often turn into people who have impossibly high standards for themselves and where they only really get satisfaction in life when they're succeeding, succeeding in school, succeeding at work, succeeding in in sports, succeeding in, in the arts, succeeding in everything that they do. And that's what gives them this dopamine hit, you know, hit the lever, get the cookie no satisfaction after about a day and then is back at it you're on the treadmill again and again and again and when that's when that's reinforced all the way through young adulthood by the time that you know then this flywheel is going with terrifying speed at 30s and 40s and you you can, you literally can't understand yourself as anything less than a successful person that goes way beyond healthy ambition that's an incredibly unhealthy state it's like being a methamphetamine addict as a matter of fact your brain kind of looks like a methamphetamine addict and, and you got to treat it the same way as any other addiction. You got to treat, you need to, you know, you need to confront it. You need to offer it up to our Lord. You need to make amends to the people that you hurt because a success addict always hurts tons of people along the way, usually mm-hmm. with desiccated relationships and bad marriages and ignoring their kids. And, and then you actually have to work through it the same way. What about somebody, and
1: I've heard uh, from many people who have had this experience lately, uh, where they've realized, wait a minute, that's exactly what I've been doing. And my relationships have suffered. What do I do now? I mean, um, maybe um, they're looking around and they, they say, I, I don't even have connections to the people that I, that I love anymore. Right. How do I rekindle that?
0: Yeah. To begin with, you actually have to do what you would do if you went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And you went through any 12-step program, you, you have to admit that you were powerless over this, and and again, nobody's completely powerless. You wouldn't be an AA if you were powerless, you know. Right. But but then you have right. to offer it up. Look, almost everybody, almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody listening to us or, or or Christian sisters and brothers with us, and they recognize that you can't do anything meaningful, you can't do anything worthwhile without offering it up to the Lord. So offer it up to the Lord. That's the that's the second part, and then the third part is the third basic part of this is to start reestablishing relationships, understanding that not everybody's going to accept it, not everybody's going to... I mean, saying, you know, I'm sorry I I skipped all your Little League games and ballet recitals because of meaningless meetings to further my own career. It's because of my brain chemistry. Not everybody's going to say, okay, dad, all good. You know, it's sorry, honey, I haven't paid attention to you for these last 15 years and you're really, really lonely and you kind of hate me. But, you know, how about bringing me back? At least at least throw yourself in the mercy of the people who love you or that you love and, and, then, and then recognize it's gonna take some time if it can happen at all to make it so, but you're not gonna, it's not gonna happen if you don't start is my basic, yeah. is my bottom line. And that's the same thing with any addiction. From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media and one of the hosts of The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. Each week on The Bulletin, we bring in a variety of guests for conversations about the most important questions Christians are asking. Our hope is to encourage the church to live with a faithful presence in the fallen world and to cut through the polarizing noise that's dividing not just the church, but the communities around us. New episodes of The Bulletin come out every Friday, so subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Well, it's similar to, you you write in the book about loneliness uh, quite a bit. And this is some, I mean, just the the mail that I get uh, from listeners and, and readers about loneliness. And one of the big questions that people have is to say, okay, I'm lonely But what can I do without this kind of awkwardness? I mean, you you can't, like you're in kindergarten, I like you, do you like me, will you be my friend? You know, so as people are saying, how do I establish friendships? Uh, How do I initiate that? Or younger people who say, I really want a mentor, but how do you just go ask somebody to be a a mentor
0: without that just being really weird and awkward? I know. Well, but to to begin with, a lot of people who have these fears, they don't actually realize how much infrastructure there is out there for friendship, for real friendship, for for good, useless friendships, as opposed Mm. to the useful friendships that they're used to. So this is real friends versus deal friends. People who have Mm. only deal friends, they don't recognize that there's actually a a world out there built for creating real friendships. And what's a deal friendship? a deal friendship is somebody that actually can further your career. That's a deal, friendship. Uh, Somebody who's good yep. for you. And then again, I, I have deal friends, and I and I like my mm-hmm. deal friends. But the point is, my I have real friends too. I got this. My, my what really one of my closest friends is a guy named Frank Hanna that you may know in Atlanta. Who is you know he's we we talked. I talked to him today, and and what do we talk about? How's you know we talk about our families? We talk about our children. We talk about we talk about our faith all the time because it's really important that we keep each other close. To our own walk because, you know, his heart is my heart when it comes to, this is what, you know, the Christian brotherhood is really all about. And, and how do we meet? We meet at, a, we met at a work thing, you know, like 20 years ago, we met at a thing and, and, and we just hit it off because we were both Christian men. And, 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 you know, the thing about it is that there were a bunch of things that we did together professionally as a, as a pretext to actually start hanging out you know if you want to mentor other people to create a more of a connection to other people there's lots of organizations that can that can facilitate that if you want to meet other guys or other gals that you just want to make friends with there's i mean if you're a catholic join the knights of columbus man you're not going to be doing <laughs> you're not going to be doing deals you're going to be shooting pool mm-hmm. and drinking beer is what it comes down to. And talking about our Lord and Savior at the same time is all the good stuff. Right? <laughs> and, and so it's just that that deal, the people who are just wrapped up in work all the time and who are success addicts, they just don't even know that these opportunities exist. You just got to do, the, you got to do it, a little shoe leather can help a lot. You know, you, you talk in the book about idolatry
1: um, and uh, you quote David Foster Wallace, this powerful This Is Water uh, speech about yeah. idols and about worshiping things how how do you discern if so because all of these things that you mention as idols they're they're almost never graven images i mean and they're things that are good um when they're in their right order but how can you tell when something's out of priority whether it's a job or a, a marriage or a friendship
0: or, or whatever it is yeah the key thing is what would you give up for it is really the acid test. Now, again, you're right. It's not like we're gonna, we're praying to Baal. you know, all that good biblical stuff. A golden there's a golden calf in my living room. It's like you know, I, yeah, I go to church on Sundays, but the golden calf, I really pray to that golden. Calf. Of course not. That's absurd. Nobody's doing that. But but what do we pray to? Uh, the Almighty Dollar. What do we pray to? Um, our our effectively our our number of, of of followers on social media. Why? Because those are the things that actually have our heart. So start thinking about what would you give up. What are the things that you would actually give up? It's interesting. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll ask my friends this. And, it, you know, some people really do have this idolatry of money, power, pleasure, fame. These are, by the way, those are the idols that St. Thomas Aquinas in 1265 listed as the four substitutes for God, the quintessential uh, idols of human life is money, power, pleasure, and fame. And fame, honor, prestige, admiration. It doesn't mean you want to be Kim Kardashian. It just means that you, you you hunger after the admiration of other people. You Social comparison is a really, really big deal to you. Other people who actually have their values even more in line, they have a little bit of idolatry too. You know, how many Christian people that we know follow the cult of workism? You know where their work is mm-hmm. everything. My work is my life. My work is my identity. Now let's go. Let's make it a little hotter. How many follow the cult of familyism? Mm-hmm. You know where mm-hmm. it's like you say. Really, I mean, if it went you're not going to have to choose between your faith and your family. But if you did, what would it be? And people yeah. basically say, my family is everything to me. My family is the most important thing to me. I hear Christian people saying this all the time, and I'm like, for Pete's mm-hmm. sake, that's just that's pure, that's a cult, man. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not. And you're not supposed to worship anything before the Lord, anything before the Lord, including your family. And I get it. You know, some people will be listening to this going, I don't get, I don't believe it. You know, there's got to be some way to square the circle, but it's the same thing that people have always said. There's some way that I can be, you know, I can still love the money, but still be a good Christian. No, no. St. Paul said it very clearly in his letter to Timothy, for the love of money, for the, 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 the you know, that the, is the root of all evil. He didn't say money is the root of all evil. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. And that is basically not to say that there's something wrong with money, but idolat- being idolatrous with the money is, is putting the money in front of God because, you know, love is dedicated to people and to the Lord. And that's it. Hmm. You know, that that
1: issue of comparison—that's a huge one. I mean, there are many people I know whose lives are just miserable because they're looking around and saying, "Well, why can't I have what she has, or, or right. why can't I?" Or, or or vice versa, whose lives are kind of stagnant because they're saying, "Well, at least I'm,
0: I'm better off than so and so." Uh, Yeah, for sure. But a lot of it comes in and and even in our in in our Christian communities to say, um, you know, why can't I have a wife as good as that person's wife or why can't I have a husband as 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 handsome and successful as that person's husband? So even, you know, that kind of that kind of uh, comparison is just as deleterious and, and winds up being just as idolatrous as somebody who says, you know, I feel crummy about myself because my boat isn't as big as my neighbors. Hmm. One one last word. What would you say to people, because I
1: hear from a lot of them, who are either pastors or Sunday school teachers or leaders of some kind, maybe lay leaders uh, in their local congregation? A lot of them say, when I look out at the Facebook uh, feeds of the people that I lead or that I serve, I start to say, what have I even been doing? And and, and they feel like failures because they see so much anger and, and rancor and so forth. How, how would you advise someone to lead other people toward a, a happier life?
0: Now, part of the problem is that with social media is, is not that it's creating more awfulness, but that the awfulness is more apparent. You mm. can actually see it in ways that you wouldn't be able to. But so, you know, when you and I were kids and we would be talking to, if I'm talking to the priest and the priest asks me about, you know, my attitudes about this, that, or the other thing, um, I'm gonna give him the right answer. Um, but if you were actually able to read my Twitter feed, he, if one had existed, it's, it's a different matter. So I think it's important not to be discouraged. Like, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, Russell. We don't have to, yeah. <laughs> like, sin is sin and people are people. Now, social media might bring out the worst in us, but it's not as if these terrible feelings are brand new and everything in the halcyon days of the 1970s. You remember the 70s? It was pretty grim, actually. <laughs> it was, you know, there's a lot of political polarization and hatred, and the Iran-Contra affair, and you know, Watergate, and the. You know, it was awful in a lot of ways, and and awful in you know just humanity is what it is. So I recommend that that pastors and all of us, by the way, who have a, a, a moral responsibility, but also an incredible opportunity to help young people along their path. Because only in helping young people along their path are we helping ourselves along our own path, too. If you're in your crystallized yeah. intelligence curve, man, it's all about sharing and, and mentoring and teaching. That's how you get to heaven, too. <laughs> yeah. and, and the key thing is to recognize that all of these things are incredible opportunities. Look, I believe that we are at the cusp of a new enlightenment, of a new day for Christian evangelization. Because, you know, the thing about it is that this has always happened, when there was dark days and it led yeah. to a hunger i think there's going to be a rebellion against the culture of bitterness the culture of contempt which is the conviction of it. the worthlessness of other people you know i look at, at when you know, in the the influencers the cultural influencers on in the on on the on the progressive left and on the populist right mm-hmm. so you basically the populist right and the cultural left which are very similar In lots of ways. And what are they doing? The people our age, they're conscripting young people as child soldiers in their culture war. Mm -hmm. That's what people our age are doing. Saying you must hate, you must be afraid, and you must use your values as a weapon and not as a gift. And young people, the young people who are listening to us, need to rebel. It's time for rebellion. And that's a rebellion of love. That rebellion of love, and then it can, I mean, it's a Gen Z people are going to, they're going to save America, I actually think. They're yeah. going to save America from us by rebelling against the culture war in which they're expected to be soldiers and to say, we refuse to hate. We demand love. You know, you need the, you know, and, and what people, I think what pastors and you know, leaders, you and me, quite frankly, need to do is to cultivate that rebellion, to cultivate mm. that, that reconquista of, mm. of our culture. And once we start getting that, there's no holding it back. And all of these, all these, you know, pathetic voices, our age and older, that are talking about the polarization in this country that's necessary because the other side is stupid and evil, lying that the biggest mm-hmm. threat to our country is your next door neighbor who votes for the other party, that mm-hmm. th- they're going to get tossed out like yesterday's news. And it, and it can't happen too soon. So, kids. Bring it on and save America. <laughs> right, that's, a good, that's
1: a good word. The book is called From Strength to Strength. Arthur Brooks, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Russell. God bless you and God bless all of our listeners. And thanks, uh, thanks to you listeners for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. It'll help people to find the show. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes along with how you can get a copy of this book. And some other resources such as the How to Build a Life uh, column that Arthur Brooks writes at The Atlantic. And while you're there, check out Christianity Today. You can have a free trial membership uh, and to join us here at CT. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show.
0: The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our Chief Creative Officer. Russell Moore is the Executive Producer and our host. Mike Cosper is our Director of Podcasts. Administration for CT by Christine Kolb, Pam Vodanova, and Abby Perry. Production Assistance by Core Media. Beth Grabencourt, Coordinator. Kevin Duthu, Producer and Sound Mixer. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes.